It's the Doc Jacques Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jacques de Brukert, a licensed professional counselor, licensed substance abuse treatment practitioner, certified substance abuse counselor, and doctor of psychology. I am your addiction lifeguard, and I'm here to help you save your life or help save the life of somebody in your family. And so I'm going to uh, talk about addiction and recovery and what you can do to help. So let's get started and find out what we learned today. It started innocently enough when I was younger and I decided that uh, I wanted to be part of the party crowd in high school. And so I did what everybody else did and was drinking beer. That was pretty much the drink of the day, beer. And that innocence of the high school drinking turned into something else later as it increased over time until finally in my 20s, I was drinking very heavily. And like most people, I thought that it was just like what everybody else was doing as I slowly slipped into the idea that this really wasn't a thing until it was a thing. And then that thing became a huge problem for me. And so realizing that it was a problem was, was not part of my reality. And then when I came to the realization that other people weren't doing what I was doing, and then I started hiding what I was doing and pretending like it wasn't happening. And unfortunately, I come from a background of a family of alcoholics and perhaps my genetics played into it or my stubbornness or my determination, my will power, but I just kept it up and it started taking things away from me and destroying me. And I knew at that point that I needed to change. So I started the long path of recovery. Almost everybody that comes into my office who's an alcoholic is always, not I say always, but is over the age of 45. Almost, almost always. I get some that are younger, but almost always over the age of 45. And they're professionals, usually, and they have lives and they've been living their life, and they unfortunately have gotten to the point where they're asking me the question, do I have a problem? Not not me, but them. Do I have a problem? And I look at them, and I'm thinking, well, you're sitting in a therapist's office who specializes in substance abuse, and you're asking him if you have a problem. You pretty much already recognize you have a problem. <laughs> And it never dawns on them the kind of absurdity of that question to somebody who's a professional. And I, I'm not going to just say, because you're sitting in my office, you have a problem. That's why you came here. But, you know, the evidence would support that you probably have a problem. That's why you're here. And maybe they're just looking for confirmation of reality and, and an understanding of, yeah, okay, well, I, I have a problem. I just need it said out loud. And I'm having trouble admitting it, which is true because they usually do. Uh, that's how it, that's where it sits. And so do you have a problem? I don't, I don't know. Uh, do you want to find out? 
that's kind of what I ask them the first thing. Say, well, do you, I don't know. Do you want to find out? And they kind of look at me quizzically and they nod. Yes. <laughs> they want to find out. So we spent some time trying to figure that out. Um, they don't like the answer that they come to a lot of times. They don't like that answer. I had one client that kept telling me that they hated me <laughs> and they kept coming back, but they, they hate, I hate you. And I'm like, I, I hate you too. <laughs> but do you have a problem? If you got to the point where you are asking that question, you probably do have a problem and it, I, you know, the great, then they're, they're looking for help and they're in the office looking for help. But I wanted to talk today about the person that doesn't know that they have a problem or that they they're denying it or whatever. And, and so the, the person that's sitting in that office chair across from me, the doctor of psychology, professional addiction, therapist, specialist, of course, they're going to, they're going to find an answer and it's a yes or no. It's always yes or no. There's no in between. It's not maybe, or I'm, 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 no, it's, it's yes or no. You have a problem or you don't. And that's the, <laughs> that's kind of the, the part that they really don't like is the idea that, oh, I have a problem. And, and a lot of times when they realize that, you know, they have a problem and they've said it out loud, that's when they panic and run away. And I know I'm not going to see them for a while, but I, they'll, they'll probably come back. But, um, it's, it's the panic and the upset. So this echo chamber that you're living in, uh, is one that you have to realize you're in an echo chamber. Your, your head is telling you something and you don't not necessarily want to admit to it. So there are things that you'll, you'll tell you, you'll rationalize. You'll say, I don't, I don't have a problem. Uh, I've, I've never had this. This is not a problem. It's never been a problem. I'm, I'm fine. I, you know, um, you know, and then you go through the list of you can control your drinking. I only do it occasionally. Um, you know, the, the excess drinking, I can always stop if I really wanted to, but I, I don't want to give it up. How am I going to live without it? My wife enjoys it. My husband enjoys it. It's for business. Um, or, or you start, you know, uh, rationalizing with yourself that you did it once and you're not going to do it again. This isn't going to happen again. I'm not going to do this. And I know I can control this. And when you're having those kinds of conversations with yourself, it's already because you have a problem. You're just trying to figure out a way to talk yourself out of having that problem. And it's a problem. Alcohol is a problem. And it's a huge problem because the, the accessibility of it and the way that you're, uh, it's seen in our society, um, is, 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 uh, acceptable and it's encouraged and all that. It's everywhere. I mean, I'm looking at my window right here and I can see a store right across from my office here in the studio where I could buy alcohol and it's there and I could go in there anytime. They're not going to ask me, are you an alcoholic? Uh, I don't have an alcoholic symbol on my driver's license that would prevent me from getting it. I don't have an alcohol, non-alcoholic card issued that shows the person that's selling it to me that I don't have alcoholism, but it's there. So it's difficult because it's everywhere. And then the, the rate of dependency, um, I'm going to, I'm going to caution. I'm going to get clinical on you. The, uh, uh, 
where was this from? Comparative ep uh, epidemiology of dependence on tobacco, alcohol, controlled substances, and inhalants. From uh, who's this from? Anthony Warner and Kessler in the clinical pharmaco psychopharmacology um, publication listed the um, what is it? The the uh, percentage of users who become dependent, uh, and they list you know tobacco, alcohol, different drugs and things. And alcohol, 15.4% uh, who become problem drinkers translates into, it literally into, into millions of people in this country. And if you include the entire globe, it's, it's even larger. 15% of people who will become dependent on that substance, 15% of our population. That's huge. And so that dependency and alcohol being so, so prevalent and legal is a problem. I mean, I, and don't get me started on pot and, you know, Oregon going with trying to legalize or have legalized, you know, any, any and all drugs. <laughs> but in the ranking of the most dangerous substances, Caution, more clinical research being brought out here by Nut King and Phillips in the uh, Drug Harms in the UK, a multi-criteria decision analysis published in uh, Lancet 2010. Alcohol, highest ranking, 72. Behind, it's in front of heroin on a, on a 100-point scale of people who are surveyed as that, like the ranking of... of um, the danger, alcohol, heroin, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, cocaine, tobacco, amphetamine, cannabis, and so on and so on. Alcohol, number one. Number one most dangerous drug. <sighs> so you got 15% of the population who's engaging in it and statistical information about the dangers of it as perceived by people at the highest ranking of all the drugs. And now you combine that with an idea of the readily readily availability relative availability of the drug and its inclusion and infusion and enmeshment in our society. And you got a mess when it comes to the use and then confronting somebody who's got a problem. It's going to be a real, it's going to be even more so. So, you know, so what's our answer? Well, our answer is to stigmatize everybody who identifies as being an alcoholic. So then they come into my office as a, a specialist in it and they say do i do i have a problem and they don't want to hear the answer because they're afraid of the answer being yes because now they're going to be stigmatized and you know what they're right we do stigmatize people who have addiction and it's 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 awful and it needs to stop the stigmatizing needs to stop people are not going to get help if they're stigmatized uh we don't we don't do it with anything else we don't do it with cancer. We don't do it with heart disease. We don't do it with metabolic syndrome. I mean, we do it. <clears throat> we do it with fat shaming. When we're talking to people who are obese, we, we stigmatize them and we stigmatize addicts. And now we're even trying to stop using the term addict. We're, there's this move in the clinical world to, to get away from that because we're harming people. So we're using substance use disorder, disordered usage patterns in describing things. And it's like, no, you're an addict. And if you get in the addict community, 
they're going to be upset when you when you try to not use the word addict because we're addicts. We are addicts and it needs to stay a label because it's it's harmful to kind of ease off of that and try to not make people feel bad about it. What we need to do is stop stigmatizing people and shaming them for coming forward when they have a problem. And so I'm on a soapbox. I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> so what, you know, how, when do you become an alcoholic? When does that term get used? When, when you know, how do you meet that? Uh, I'm an alcoholic. Well, um, it's patterns of drinking, it's behavior, it's dependence. Do you go into withdrawal when you're stopping? Uh, is it, is it preoccupying your time? Dependency can be emotional. It can be physical. It can be mental, but is there something there? But I, I think if you get to the point where you're saying, geez, I wonder if I have a problem, you have a problem, period. You have a problem. And so now it's time to get help. And so, um, it starts, you know, it's kind of weird when people start drinking, they don't think of it as being addiction until it becomes a problem, right? But when does that, how does that patterns of drinking every day, uh, once a week, once a month, once a year, every hour, what is your pattern? And when do you, uh, when do you, when do you fall into that pattern? Um, you know, the scripture that says, God does not present us with temptations we can't overcome. We're, 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 we have temptations, and the, those temptations can get us into trouble. Uh, but we can overcome them if we are honest. So be honest. That's the first step in, in getting that help. But you probably are an alcoholic if you're asking yourself, I wonder if I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> That's the truth. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor.fm. It's a free podcast platform that has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started today. Cruising along after college, I kind of held it together and reduced my drinking until a few years after college, found out that uh, my mother had died and nobody bothered to tell me. They didn't try to find me. They didn't seek me out. And that kind of started a spiral that uh, the drinking picked back up again. And... That uh, was shocking to me because I thought that I was able to handle things. I'm a mature adult male. I can, I can handle stuff. But like many people suffering traumatic events in their lives, they don't realize how severe they are until they experience them. And that really can take you out of the knees.
A really interesting fact of um, drinking is a weird phenomenon of people who go to college and they drink and they drink excessively. They drink like they're alcoholics. Um, a doctor, Thomas McClellan, who's, who was the uh, CEO of Treatment Research Institute and a former deputy dire director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, he uh, he stated that he was looking at research of college students who drink in college and they drink like they're alcoholics and they were between the ages of 18 and 25. And then when they left college, they just stopped drinking totally or they stopped drinking like alcoholics and did not become alcoholics. Uh, there, one of his colleagues uh, looked at Drexel University freshman class about 15, 20 years ago and he was really concerned. He said he was really concerned about the males who had either a father or an uncle with an alcohol problem who were drinking. So he measured alcohol consumption in groups who didn't have that first degree uh, relative and age matched them with males who did have um, that problem with the alcoholic parent or rel uncle, father, uncle. And they were all drinking heavily. And, um, he found out after four years, he kept track of them. And after four years, he resurveyed them. And those who had sons uh, who were sons of alcoholics were still drinking the same way they were in college. But the children, the sons of non-alcoholics had reduced their drinking substantially. Patterns of behavior are influenced with addiction, with life experience, period. And so it's not necessarily a behavioral problem, a, a chronic relapsing condition like alcoholism. It's a behavior of addiction, yes, but as a behavior only, no. That's not been my experience. As a, as a doctor treating people who have this problem, that has been not. Uh, it's been an experience that's different than what I experience. I experience people who have significant problems and they did probably start drinking when they were young. And this is what's so confusing because maybe they could handle it. I'm using my little finger quotes here. They could handle it when they were in college or they were drinking like everybody else. And this confuses them. And so they go to college, they drink like everybody else. Then they get out and they keep drinking and their friends or that were in college with them stop. And then by the time they get to 45, 50, 55, 60 years old, they're coming into my office asking me that question, do I have a problem? And so when, when we look at, at alcoholism, it's an insidious incremental increase over a long period of time. And so it, it makes it difficult to recognize when you cross that threshold and you have become, it's become a problem. Um, so what do you, what do you do when it becomes a problem? What do you, what do you do? Well, you just keep drinking because that's what people do. They just keep drinking. And until they can get the help. The approach that I like to take in treatment of my clients is to really understand how far into alcoholism they are. Are they physically dependent? Do they go into withdrawal if they haven't had a drink in two hours? Or are they drinking excessively on the weekends or maybe once or twice during the week? Are they the after work uh, drink a six pack kind of person or a bottle of wine. 
what what is their preference and and then also kind of what have they been going over uh what's their drinking pattern been over the last five years and then two years and then one year and then six months I, i look at it that way i ask them those questions to try to figure out where they are in their in their addiction um to alcohol and so the treatment uh should be one that is based on an assessment of their pattern, their need, and not based on, you know, you drink every day. And so you're an alcoholic, you must go to rehab because that's stigmatizing. We don't treat any other disease that way. We do an assessment of the condition and the, uh, we, we have diagnostic specificity in that way that we try to figure out exactly where they are with what's going on and what is the treatment, uh, protocol and, and, how are we going to treat this disease? And you can't just use a universal um, treatment for a complex disease like alcoholism. You know, are, are, there, are they comorbid? Are, they, are there other factors involved? So we, I do a complete assessment of their condition and try to figure out where they are in their addiction first. Second, once the person, I've determined what the person's level of addiction is, then we start a, a treatment. But the treatment may change over time. Uh, you know, try one thing. And if that doesn't work because it's not, it's not a a strong enough, uh, treatment, I'll, I'll step it up a little bit. The immediate answer is not going to rehab unless the person comes in and, and they are just full blown going into withdrawals. I've had people go into withdrawals in my office because they didn't want to show up drunk in my office. So they tried not to drink that day. And then they came in at four o'clock in the afternoon and they're starting to sweat, they're shaking, they're going into full-blown withdrawals. So uh, the treatment is determined by where they're at in their disease. What what stage are they in their alcoholism? Stigma not stigmatizing is the goal, right? So get get the help and and stop with the stigmatizing, but there is only one answer when it comes to recovery and that is to move to recovery. It's not sort of dance around it and, you know, placate the person by saying, well, you know, you're, you're really not that bad. It's bad. That's why they're here. So trying to figure out what it is and, you know, inpatient treatment, residential inpatient treatment may be necessary. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's disruptive. It's, uh, it's a lot of things, but you know, it may be necessary, but it's not always the answer. Um, the other thing is, is there a straight line to recovery? No, there is not a straight line to recovery. I only know one person out of all the years that I've been treating people for the last 16, 17 years, one person who made a straight line to recovery. And he had a unique perspective and uh, he, he was a poly addict. It wasn't just alcoholism, it was drugs and alcohol, which is even more amazing because I just couldn't believe that he did that. And he's uh, five years in recovery now. Never once a relapse, never once a slip. And But he is a unicorn. He is the unicorn. It is not a straight line to recovery. It's not going to be a straight line to recovery. So you're going to have some challenges along the way. But it appears that that uh, people who are over-treated, um, who would have qualified for an outpatient program, um, become jaded because they're 
they become what I call clinically oriented. They, they know all the tricks. They know what to say. They know what not to say. They know what this whole recovery process clinically looks like. And so they can dance the dance without actually even hearing the music. Um, and that's, that's very counterproductive. So if the person is in early stages of alcoholism, they can work on abstinence and go to meetings and see a counselor and they're probably going to be fine. Um, you know, they, unless they continually are slipping up or not really adhering and, and, and granted I'm, I'm listening to their words and I'm going with what they're denying and what they're claiming, you know, but, uh, as a professional in the recovery community, I actually know what they're doing. Cause I hear it. Cause I, I get feedback from people in meetings who are talking about others in the meetings and they don't realize that I know who they're talking about. <laughs> uh, not that they know each other, but they don't know that I know them. Um, so I get to hear the, the progress that they're making or not. Um, but a lot of it's based on honesty, but anyway, that's a relationship between the client and the therapist that has to be established. But beside that, um, you want to look at what's the best treatment for the person. And so inpatient or outpatient, it, you know, there's an option there for one or the other, but the, the, really you have to be able to, um, find what's effective and, they can both be effective, but if they're inadequate, they're not going to be effective. So an ineffective outpatient program does not mean that the alcoholic wasn't effective in treatment. It's just that it was an ineffective program or it might have been a bad match for them. So, you, you know, again, try not to stigmatize because you may go through treatment six times, five times, you may go through treatment once you may go to AA meetings or, or uh, smart recovery or other, other programs, um, that, that, you know, try to control your drinking. There's, there's one out there that I don't know that I buy into it, but, um, you know, you, you may, you may do that, but really it, it's, it's, it's a progressive zigzaggy line, not a straight line to recovery. So, you got to use all your resources, all of them. Get Go to a physician who understands addiction, a psychiatrist, get on naltrexone, get, get, uh, get an abuse, you know, uh, get, get something that can help you along the way through clinical um, supportive uh, medications or services. That's one. Get emotional support. Get, get into the recovery community. But it's not a straight line. So those of you who have family members out there, they're alcoholics. You think you're getting on the train and it's stopping at the next uh, station and that station's recovery. And uh, you're going to, that train gets derailed frequently. <laughs> Can get derailed. In in my case, it was not a straight line to recovery. But the the idea of, of aging out of your drinking is, uh, is, is maybe going to happen, maybe not. So... Looking for treatment options, you must look. And um, I've said this before in previous podcasts, but you know, I've never met an addict who actually wanted to get sober. Uh, they they never come in and say, "I want to get sober." They they know they need to, but they don't want to. So I can't really rely on other people, uh, the addict, to be so self motivated and driven that they're going to actually seek out all the treatment themselves. They're not going to. And part of what they do when they come into my office is. I'm trying to get them to move there. So I will move them there, um, get my hooks in them and 
get them moving along. It's a partnership and a team effort. No individual gets sober. Groups do. Groups get sober. So you got to join in the group. And the family members, if you are stigmatizing the addict in your family, in the in your midst, you are not going to be part of the team. And that's going to be a problem. And so be part of the team. Join in on that effort. And uh, so supportive um, work by family, friends, loved ones is also vital to recovery. So when you're working on recovery and you're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do, so many factors involved, so many variables involved, but it really comes down to uh, that answer to that question. That's such a, such an interesting question when it's asked of me is like, do I have a problem? Do you think I have a problem? Man, oh man, when I do these podcasts, I don't feel like I could get enough in in a half an hour. I do this for a living, so I sit in my office for hours and hours and hours working with people, and there's so much to learn and so much that you can you can implement in your life, but I think a good understanding of recovery is one that's based on strength, and when we feel powerless because we have addiction in our life, whether it's our own or watching somebody else, we do truly feel powerless. And so feeling powerless, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless, these are all signs that the enemy is winning that battle uh, that you're waging against addiction. Because remember, addiction is a an enemy and the addict is not the enemy. So stop stigmatizing addicts, please. And reach in for that inner strength that you think is not there. Because as in Isaiah 40, 29, he gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. And if you have some faith and you have some belief that you can reach for that strength when it's offered to you even when you feel powerless you'll overcome this enemy of addiction and don't let addiction win it's not worth it as i say every podcast it's not how many times you fall down that matter it's how many times you get back up and you only have to get back up that one last time so help yourself or help somebody else get back up and live a fulfilling, satisfying, contributing life, and your life will be enriched as well. Well, that's it for this episode of Doc Shock, the Addiction Lifeguard podcast. I am Dr. Jacques de Bruckert, a licensed professional counselor in the state of Virginia and Texas, a licensed substance abuse treatment practitioner in Virginia, and a certified substance abuse counselor. And I am so excited to be able to reach out to people and give them information that can help them get into recovery. If you need help in your local area, wherever you're listening to this, please look for it. You can find it online and uh, you can find meetings online. They're every hour on the hour, 24 hours a day, whether it's Al-Anon, uh, you got NA, AA, 
or Al-Anon, and they're there. So all you got to do is just find one, log in, and attend the meeting. If you need help and you're in Texas or you're in Virginia, I can certainly help you. You can reach out to me through my website, wellspringmindbody.com, and uh, ask for help, and I'll see what I can do to help you. It's not worth ending your life to save your addiction. And so get the help. I look forward to future podcasts. And I think I'm going to probably have to do some more on alcoholism because I don't feel like I gave you much. (laughs) Maybe I did. I don't know. But it didn't seem like it was enough. So get sober, get clean and be happy.